please, not at all. He's trouble. You see the mustache? I asked him to shave that. That's right. Mr. Morehouse, I really don't care. But he is one of our cleaning people, Eric. I want him. He's not for sale. Why not? Because he's a person. Daddy said anything I wanted, anything in the store. You can't buy a human being, Eric. Well, why not? Because it's against law, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Mr. Morehouse, doesn't my daddy make the laws? Um, I think he's got a point there. You know, I've seen him. Now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. We are, as always, your home for the obscure, the bizarre, the unloved, the overlooked, and the underappreciated. And our choice for today is certainly the bizarre. That, uh, that is the, the box that this one fits in. I don't think... Uh, unloved, probably as well, overlooked to some degree, underappreciated, certainly not, and uh, obscure. <laughs> I would not really say obscure because uh, this one actually made uh, made some rounds back in the day and, and can be found now. So we are going to be looking at 1982's The Toy, which if you haven't seen it, we will be digging into this in depth and talking about the oddities and horrors that lay within. If you have seen it, it was probably because it used to be on TBS and TNT on like a regular rotation in the early 90s, because I'm the only person here on the panel who has seen this. I don't think I'd ever seen it in its entirety. I saw bits and pieces. It would be on TV regularly. Maybe it was on HBO, but definitely was on like TBS and TNT as one of their afternoon movies. So you know, very, very familiar to me. And they kind of like, yeah, I, I remember this, but I think this is the first time I've actually sat down and watched it in its entirety. So definitely was picking up on some more stuff that uh, I wouldn't have then. So before we dive into everything about the toy, I will introduce our panel here. We have a regular returning contributor here with Tim. Hi, thank you for making me watch this. And uh, we have coming back from uh, one of our horror offerings. Uh, he was on Dead Alive, and he was on our first episode. We have Ryan. Hello. And we've got uh, Fabs coming in, who is also on uh, Revenge of the 90s and has been on this podcast a couple times as well. Hey, guys. This was definitely not Toy Soldiers, but it was a movie. It was also definitely not toys starring robin williams which is yeah that's a fact i had assumed that's what this was until you know wooden sent me the 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 movie and i started playing it and then i saw richard pryor's name pop up and i was like oh no it's the slave movie yes tim uh tim thought this was toys with robin williams fabs uh thought this was toy soldiers which is a movie i've never seen and my response to all that is these boys clearly need to learn how to read because I put everything I gave them said the toy. We will be watching the toy. So it should have been real clear. Yeah, but those but, other ones are better. <laughs> well, I assume I've never seen Toy Soldiers either, but Toy uh, Soldiers is a movie about a boarding school. that gets uh, taken over by terrorists starring Sean Austin and Jerry Orbach. So, yeah, see, yes, please. That sounds better. <laughs> it's probably, it's probably, it would be hard to not be better. So it would be, but I'm glad, I'm glad I saw that. 
Fabs now owns this on Blu-ray. It's it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, I know. I got this on Betamax. I got it on Blu-ray. I got it in 4K. I got VHS. I spent $300 to get the entire collection of this film. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So uh, The Toy is a 1982 film by Richard Donner. It is a remake of a French film. And it stars uh, kind of like a an Im- somewhat impressive cast for the time, for you know the the talent of the day. There's there's three primary people who pop out. You have Richard Pryor plays Jack Brown. You have Jackie Gleason plays U.S. Bates, who's like a, a rich guy who it, they they filmed it in Baton Rouge, but it's set in the fictional uh, Bates, Louisiana. So it's like he's his family has been uh, you know a major player in the South for decades or centuries is the implication scott schwartz plays eric bates and he's i think they say he's nine but the kid was like 13 or 14 when they filmed this and he is tiny for that age and you will probably only recognize that kid as flick from a christmas story the kid who gets his tongue stuck on the flagpole because he didn't uh, have a very lengthy career film career and then ned Beatty is the other name of note and he plays one of Jackie Gleason's um, like underlings. So, I mean, you know, Ned Beatty, this is 1982. Deliverance, I think, was like 73. And Ned Beatty had been in Network and a lot of other character roles in the, in the 70s and into the 80s. So, like, this is kind of his heyday for popping up and stuff. Jackie Gleason, obviously, had been a, a massive talent in his day. The Honeymooners was huge back in the 50s. And they did various revivals. And he would come back out and do, like, variety shows and things like that and he was in the hustler which i think he won an academy award for is that right i thought fabs might know anyway uh yeah i think think he was at least nominated and then obviously he was in the Smokey and the bandit series which were in through the 70s so he kind of had a career resurgence with those so he's coming off of like the three smoking the bandit movies and this is 82 so I think that's like right in there at the tail end of the Smokey and the Bandit series. And then Richard Pryor obviously had been a stand-up comedian uh, throughout the 70s, had had a very famous Saturday Night Live episode appearance, and was in a variety of movies in like the late 70s through the 80s and into the early 90s. So you have like a fairly impressive cast for uh, for its day, and... Then we come to the premise. The premise of the film is that Richard Pryor is kind of a down-on-his-luck reporter who is having trouble securing a job, and he is going into some places to try to try to you know apply and get a job. One of the places is owned by U.S. Bates. Um, it's it's his paper. Uh, well, he he had no he had tried to go in and, and get a job there, but they they won't hire. And so he's trying to just get any kind of job and he's trying to get like a cleaning job and that kind of gets his foot in the door. And then from there, the dominoes kind of fall. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. We'll get to the, the dominoes later. Oh, but yes. so that's basically kind of the setup is that's who Richard Pryor is. He's a guy looking for work and, you know, trying to trying to get a gig. And he comes across uh, by accident, the son of U.S. Bates, Eric Bates, who uh, is like home from kind of like a military school type place. Kids, like I said, like nine years old. 
and the kid was told by his father, he's only sees his father like one week a year. And he's told by his father, he can like have anything he wants in this toy store. And it's like a toy store that's owned by his father. And Richard Pryor's character happens to be in there. And that kid ends up wanting Richard Pryor. He just wants him. And we'll talk about some of the wonderful dialogue that comes up. But yeah, basically, this is a, as I called it on on our uh, pre-document for this stuff, a family comedy about slavery. And uh, it it doesn't get better from there. So uh, it's uh, basically they they hire Richard Pryor, but it's he does get paid, but it's it, the movie outright plays with the slavery narrative. Richard Pryor comments on it. And it's not just that, oh, we need to hire you as a babysitter or we need to hire you as someone to, you know, look after this kid. He's also not trained for any of this stuff. So it's not like there really is any kind of reason why he'd be doing it anyway. It's just the kid just kind of says that one and they give him a bunch of money (laughs) and then he reluctantly agrees to it. So it plays with this slavery narrative. It is uncomfortable it's weird it's made in 1982 which is like way way later than anything like this should have ever been made but uh we'll talk about how they approach the material how they could have approached it and maybe have made something work but at the end of the day we're all pretty much in agreement it does not work it is no. not good. Where do it you is, want to start? <laughs> it is weird. It is bizarre, but it is also often bland. So we'll, we'll get into that as well. But all right. So that's my spiel, my opening spiel on the toy. We are looking at this 1982 Richard Pryor movie. What do we make of it? <laughs> I'll just repeat what I said just a moment ago. I, where do we want to start? Because... Like you mentioned like the premise and how it doesn't get better from there because essentially, you know, this is a family-friendly slavery film. But even before that, they get into this really weird thing, this weird like gender role thing before, Mm -hmm. before you even get to the kid wanting to buy a black man as a toy when Richard Pryor's character is trying to get any job like he goes to a temp agency he's just trying to find anything there is a listing for a cleaning lady that he you know he's trying to get his foot in the door anywhere he's trying to get it and the temp guy says well no you can't do that and there's this they turn it into this weird bit where he is threatening to basically he throws the fact that his uh wife or his girlfriend i don't remember his girlfriend girlfriend is a lawyer and very litigious to like intimidate him into giving him this cleaning lady job because it would be discrimination not to, which would be, which is one thing they, they don't play it particularly well or clever, but okay, that's one thing. But then the next scene, they're making him, he didn't just get this cleaning lady job. They're making him dress as a cleaning lady. And it's just, it's just, just the. So it's Richard, Richard Pryor in like a French maid get up. Yeah. Without wearing any underwear, apparently, because one of the one of the rich white dudes looks up under his skirt for some reason and is like horrified, and it's like, why are you looking under there in the first place, dude? But the the whole thing, it's just, and and this is so emblematic of 
the movie as a whole as it continues to get worse from there is it doesn't actually have any real viewpoint that it's latching onto it's throwing all of these like weird kind of hot button issues so to speak at the audience but there's no there's no actual intent to use it to say anything specific it is like the worst it's it's like the worst of shot comedy where it's just oh here's a weird funny thing let's just throw this out there and there's no coherence to anything that's going around any individual bit or attempt at a joke yeah and it it just like it seemed like richard Pryor didn't even like want to be in the scene like he's it wasn't even like Try, like really trying all that hard i'm not it. even really sure why he's in this movie why he agreed to I, do it in the first I, place i don't i money maybe i don't know like it, it and like the scene is just it just doesn't make any sense like in, in a movie about like a kid buying a, a black man as a toy this scene makes probably the least amount of sense of any of the scenes in the movie which is really saying something because it's just like painfully like you get the joke in the first like the joke, you know, in air quotes, in the first f- three seconds. And then you're just like, well, like, why? Like, why did, like, he, the guy want, so he he's trying to get a job because um, he, he got a house from uh, his mother passing away, uh, but he didn't pay the mortgage on the house. So he owes like $10,000. So he needs to get any job to start paying this mortgage down. And so, like, uh, in theory, he <laughs> would want to keep a job. And so he knows by doing this, he's likely going to get fired because he's not a moron in this movie. Like he doesn't make the greatest life decisions in a few areas, but like he seems pretty smart. He's apparently a very good writer. So like he would know, and I know that it, the movie is like a comedy, a ridiculous comedy, but like it, I, just, I just still don't like when scenes make no sense. Like by doing this, he knows he's going to get in trouble. Like he's going to immediately lose his job. On, on what Fabs is saying about it, like not making sense, like just to clarify too, it's it's Richard Pryor. At one point, he has a beard, and Ned Beatty tells him, "Oh, well, you can't have a beard. You know, uh, like U.S. won't won't allow that." And so that cuts to the next scene, and Richard Pryor, the beard is gone, but he's kept his mustache. And so, I mean, Richard Pryor in most of his movies had a mustache. He's like and, George Steinbrenner. <laughs> yeah, no facial hair. And so, so he has a mustache and so, you know, which is like whatever, but then that scene directly precedes the, the wearing a dress scene. And so then you have Richard Pryor who is in this French made outfit, you know, or whatever made outfit. And he still has a mustache and still looks male. Like he's not attempting to look female. So you have like plenty of like old bad comedies or even stuff like some like it hot, which I would say is also an old bad comedy, but they all say it's great. Um, but that's where like, you know, men put a man in a dress and it's funny, but at least in those, they are selling you on the idea of, okay, it's conceivable. Someone would think this is a woman and, and, and they're, you know, they're trying to look like a woman, Richard Pryor is just Richard Pryor literally wearing a maid's outfit and he walks out there and like most of the people don't react to him and he clearly has a mustache. And so it's like the scene plays in a very bizarre way of, well, what's, what is this for? Are we supposed to laugh at the idea that they somehow aren't noticing or they don't pay attention to the staff or, cause you can't even say it goes back to, you know, like Tootsie or, uh, or some like it hot where, 
it's somebody in a dress and it's the the quote-unquote comedy of that so yeah i'm with you fabs that the scene doesn't make a lick of sense it also didn't make sense because when he was serving the food as the maid he was just like chucking it at the table and i was like don't you want this job (laughs) yeah well and that's like fabs fabs brought up that you know richard's prior character like isn't dumb but i actually one of the and i feel like i'm really overanalyzing this movie considering just how bad it is overall but like one of the big one of the big issues i had is it didn't seem like there was a coherent character to richard uh what'd you say it was john brown or jack brown jack 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 brown i think because like there are moments like when he is essentially negotiate negotiating with jackie gleason about you know being his son's toy and accepting money for it like it's very clear that you know brown is aware of how wrong the situation is he's aware of how racist it is and you know you can see that he's figuring out the ways he can use that to his advantage so like there are scenes like that where yeah he is aware of the situation he's an intelligent person but then there are like stretches of the movie where he is like essentially talking to himself like a crazy person where he's like creating like when, when he's the, the wonder wheel like when he's just like bumbling around the toy store and he's like creating like these like fantasy worlds around him like i was trying to figure out how all these different elements connected to one another one another as a single character outside of the fact that it's all richard pryor and that was like them that total that scene though was that total stretch of like he needs to seem fun so the kid wants to like by him yeah like he yeah. needs to see him like entertaining but you're totally right and like <laughs> I, and I was like i was trying <laughs> and i was like trying to like fold fold it in my head like mental gymnastics of like okay well maybe it's supposed to be illustrative of you know his creativity because he's supposed to be like a writer and a journalist but again like throughout the movie he just reacts in very kind of emotionally stunted ways that do not jive with the kind of intelligence that we see when he's dealing directly with Jackie Gleason uh, from time to time. So it, ju- it just did not ma- it did not fit into one character. It also uh, I, I didn't pick up on that. I mean, I think you're right, but it also plays out when like one of the aspects of the narrative is Richard Pryor is basically spending like a week with this kid. And they present the kid as like being kind of a troublemaker. But honestly, the kid doesn't do anything all that bad like he dumps some like like food like he has like a bucket over a doorway and like like gets richard Pryor like got some food or junk on him like slime on him a couple times and he also locks him outside this uh, mansion at one point with all these like sirens going off and there's a couple other things but if you want to have a movie where the kid is like an issue you would think like oh like problem child where it's like this like it's like a demon child who but played for laughs and that's not what this kid is he's like fairly normal a little bit rambunctious and so that already you're already on a comedic level you're not taking it to the extreme you need to you need to have this kid be just like heinous and then richard Pryor's like but i need the money and it's not that it's like this kid's just like it's kind of sad because he like doesn't really have any friends and he can't connect with his dad and his dad's pretty distant so you have that but then you also have these scenes where um richard Pryor is he realizes how sad the kid's life is 
and that the way the, the rest of the staff treats him. And at one point, Richard Pryor says like, oh, well, so all the staff will just like threaten to tell your dad stuff. Well, I'm not going to do that. And it's kind of the first moment where it seems like they're having some kind of breakthrough. But then within a scene, he's kind of, oh, I hate you again. I want nothing to do with this. I want to leave, even though that doesn't make sense, because at the end of the day, he still needs the money. And so yeah. they, they're, they're trying to do a second act. They're trying, which, you know, the middle of your movie, you need to have problems. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to do, well, the kid has problems because he can't connect with people. Richard Pryor needs money and he's being driven nuts by the kid, but none of it's clear enough. And so at times they're like zinging between Richard Pryor hating this kid for not reasons that feel justified in a comedy. Like it's not extreme enough, but they also are establishing Richard Pryor needs money, but he's like willing to walk away kind of in a moment's notice. I mean, he is embarrassed in one point, but it's it, it they just never sell it ultimately yeah. is what I'm getting at. And they they repeat yeah. that formula a couple different times where it's like, <laughs> oh, here's this connection like like the the we can talk about this for other reasons too, but the bathtub scene, like where yes. he gets in the tub because the kid doesn't want to take a bath and it's like it's presented as oh he's he's sticking up for the kid. He's gonna, you know, do something for him and they're going to connect and like just like you said with the um uh you know the connection where like oh they're getting together the next scene something mildly inconvenient happens and he's back to storming out the front door and yeah there's the i don't know if it's an issue with pacing or just like you said the 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 stakes don't really line up on a comedic level for it to really work but there's there's a whole like 20 minute section of the movie where it's just stuck in the mud where it just keeps repeating that kind of basic cycle over and over again and you could maybe get away with it if there were genuinely funny bits but this movie doesn't really have it. Like there are a handful of moments that I kind of chuckled to myself, but they were all, they were all situations where it's just Richard Pryor is a very talented dude and he can make things work that really shouldn't. The movie isn't really giving him anything to actually do anything substantial. So there are a lot of older comedies that have not aged well, but there are like iconic comedy moments within them. So even though they may have aged badly, even though there may be cringy elements to them, they may still be worth seeking out for some of those iconic moments. This has nothing. It's like the, the only reason <laughs> to seek this movie out is for the cringe factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and putting aside like the obvious, like major issue with the movie, you're, you guys are both right. Like this movie tips its hand and just, keeps doing the same thing over and over and a movie of higher caliber, you know, the great barrier that you have to reach is, or you, that you have to breach is, is the kid trusting the adult they're going to become friends with the problem child kid trusting that adult. And then either you break that trust by they, that, that adult goes back on their word or there is an external force. There's an external force that's pulling the kid away at some point where it's going to uh, break up that relationship. And so, but this movie doesn't have either of those. It's just like rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat for literally 60 minutes in the movie. And so like, it kind of just all gets bumbled and jumbled together. And I know we're going to get into like how to fix the movie, but like right there, I mean, (laughs) there's the obvious answer. 
But right there, though, like the pacing and and having those external factors that um, that are kind of driving everything not exist. It just there are no stakes in this movie. Like he he gets this ten thousand dollars like he leaves and then he gets the ten thousand dollars. So he just has to like stay there. It's not even like you have to do X, Y and Z or he has to get an A on his test or like he has to achieve anything. He just needs to exist in this world for like four more days. And even that's not even difficult because he bonds with the kid immediately in like the next scene when they go, uh, they, uh, they go like on a little mini fishing trip uh, (laughs) and they're immediately cool. And then they're they're not cool, but then they're cool again. But, but so quickly they have, they form a relationship, which is like really cute and endearing, but also the main obstacle is him existing and lasting for four days with this kid. Who's really not even that bad of a kid. Yeah. And, and as you guys were talking, I was kind of like forming in my head. I didn't think about this as I was watching it. Cause I was marveling at too many awful things that were taking place, but how you could approach this just from a structural standpoint, if you removed the kind of heinous racial implications, if you clean that up, which we will definitely dig into soon, but if you remove that and if it just came down to it where it's sort of like a problem childlike scenario and this guy has to be this babysitter for this kid for like a week. Well, I think the obvious thing that would work is the kid keeps getting progressively worse and worse. You could try to do something where they're bonding, but for whatever reason, the kid keeps acting out or things keep happening or however you want to make it sell it. But the kid keeps getting worse and worse and doing worse and worse things. And the dad has to keep paying more and more money. And so that, at least then, you are upping the stakes for the dad because it's like, how much is this going to cost me? You're upping the stakes for Richard Pryor where it's like, how long do I want to be here? And hey, he's still paying and he's going to be conflicted. And then you have like the central crisis of the kid of maybe like he really is trying to connect with the guy or whatever you want to do. But that never happens. I mean, there's a couple of points where they negotiate price and it's like thrown around a couple of times and it's like, all right, all done. Okay, you're good for the next five days. And then they move on. And then like Fabs is saying, it just kind of goes in this weird cycle. And and as I was thinking of this, there's actually a movie, it, very different, but there's a movie called Cheap Thrills from 2013, where it's kind of like that idea of, well, how much would it take for you to do blank? How much would it take for you to, you know, get punched in the face? That That kind of idea. And it's a movie that starts, essentially, it's like two guys, I think, in a bar that don't really know each other, or vaguely know each other, and they have that type of conversation. And then it goes from there to they start doing these things. And they, I, I can't remember the connection, but basically somebody ends up actually having a lot of money and they they start fucking with each other and mutilating themselves because they're just both, they're both like desperate people. And so it's, it's a very like bleak kind of like smaller indie movie. Ethan Embry was in it and I can't remember the other guy it's worth watching, but that, that movie made sense because it like, it kept that escalation going of it's these two guys who are just absolutely desperate and what are they willing to do for the next amount of money? Obviously this is a comedy, so you can't go to that extreme, but you can do it in a comedic level. You can like put Richard Pryor through the ringer and, you know, more and more money needs to be required, but that just like, isn't what happens. Mm-mm. You could even do like, I mean, make the kid a mini Joe Rogan hosting fear factor. Like there are like, when you bring it like that, like, yeah, just like that general model of escalation 
in and of itself would at least help in terms of the pacing of the movie. You know, yeah. it wouldn't fix the other problems, but it would at least make the writing better. Oh yeah. The drama of the kid being able to fire him and like freely throwing that, that out there in a realistic way throughout would have been much better than him being like, no, like you should stick around and be my friend, please. And say, okay, well, like this doesn't seem so hard. So it sounds like they did it a lot better in the classic Hulk Hogan film, Mr. Oh, Danny. I love that movie. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I only have vague recollections of that movie, and they are not good recollections, <laughs> but even those not good recollections are preferable to, to the toy. So <laughs> I remember that. Buster Poindexter the villain. Yeah, he has like a... Uh... Metal plate, metal plate, or something? yeah. Oh, that movie's crazy. His name's Thanatos. Yes, <laughs> why do I know so much about this damn movie? <laughs> we don't oh. know, Ryan, but that's don't, why you're here. Don't act like you haven't been watching that every day for the past five months, Ryan. No, Tim, I watch Suburban Commando. <laughs> oh, that's great, too. Yes, <laughs> all right, but it so was back to the toy. That's the flame and yawn of Hulk Hogan movies. <laughs> So back to the toy. Uh, so yeah, we, we definitely want to dig into a lot of the racial aspects here very soon. Before we do, I think, because we, we've already alluded to enough, we've already talked about how this movie doesn't really work. I I, I want to put out the question of like, how did this get made? Um, I, again, we, we, we're, okay. we're, we're leaving a bunch of stuff back. <laughs> so you're going you're gonna to get some good stuff coming up here. But it's 1982. And, you know, it's not the most progressive era in history, certainly, but you have a lot more movies starring African-Americans. You have Richard Pryor, who's a very famous comedian of his day, very talented comedian. Richard Pryor didn't always pick the best projects. I mean, he, he was in a lot of like, he's one of those comedians that ended up in a lot of movies that like didn't ultimately work, but he is like at his core, very talented. So it makes sense that, you would have this movie and like Richard Pryor is the star and Jackie Gleason, who was big in the fifties and kind of has this resurgence in the seventies. Like I understand on a pure, like kind of money level, why people might say, okay, those, those two are powerhouses. Let's get them together. But the script though, like what the, you, you could have done this movie. It could have been like, it, it was based on a French movie it didn't have a racial aspect in the French movie. The, the, from my understanding, the character was just white. And when they changed it over, they had the idea of, oh, we can make the character black. Or they wanted to build it around Richard Pryor. I'm not sure. But basically, then they're like, oh, well, we'll lean into this. So then you write this script that has all these very troubling racial implications from the get-go. And I don't understand why does Richard Pryor decide to do it why does jackie gleason think it's a good idea is just because jackie gleason was probably born in like 1902 or something and was like yeah that's fine <laughs> um but my, my big question though is why would richard donner do this and so I'll, I'll put this out to the floor but because richard donner if you don't know is a very famous uh film director he's not you know as famous as like steven spielberg or hitchcock like where you might not know him by name but he's done a ton of huge movies He's still alive. He's like 90, but he did all the lethal weapon movies. He did the classic Christmas film Scrooged with Bill Murray. He did the Goonies and he did various other films throughout his career. But prior to the toy, he was coming off directing the Omen, which was a very famous uh, horror film of the seventies and like very, did very well. 
and he did the original Superman and part of like most of or half of Superman 2. There was like some weirdness of him like leaving the project or whatever. But he's essentially at the end of the day responsible for the first two Superman movies to some degree. And so he did these kind of the first major superhero movies. The first Superman movie was a huge blockbuster. It kind of changed the game to some degree along with like Jaws and Star Wars of what you could do on film. He does Superman 2, which is also successful. He does The Omen. And so this is like following those. And is it just Richard Donner thinks, oh, a comedy with Jackie Gleason and Richard Pryor? That sounds fun. I, I don't know. I don't know why at that point in his career you would take this gig. Why would you do it? Well, I, I wonder if, I mean, like you said, you know, the 80s aren't exactly the most progressive era. You know, we're, we're right at the start of, you know, Reaganomics and all of that stuff. And, you know, it was not a great time for minorities and people living in inner cities and stuff like that. So I wonder if, you know, be, for as much flack as people get nowadays for like being too woke and cancel culture and all of that, I do think to a certain extent that does help you find interesting and different viewpoints to take when you're dealing with various subject matter. This feels like, you know, obviously it was not a woke time. It was, you know, a very different kind of social conscience in the early 80s. If this was what rich people in Hollywood, rich white people in Hollywood, like saw like, oh, this is going to be a politically relevant thing that we can do. And because there's no opposing or differing viewpoints, no one sees a problem with this. They just see, oh, here's like, here's like something that we could do that would be like politically relevant or like risque or like, you know, shocking, controversial. And that was as far as they got. Like they didn't, they, they didn't think about the nuance. They didn't think about how it would be perceived by, you know, a larger demographic of people. It was just for that time, you know, the, 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 the people who signed off on this just looked at it as this kind of generic foray into political comedy or satire like i'm sure at some point someone thought that this was satire it's not that's there's there's no satire <laughs> there's no point being made other than when we talk about the end like a very horrible one that i don't think was intended but like i'm sure like that was that was the the buzzword in their mind when they were making this yeah and this movie reeks of like oh, well, like, I have a black friend. Like, I'm not racist. Like, we have Richard yeah. Pryor in it. It's not offensive. Like, if he's going to be in it, like, then it can't be, like, a racist movie. Um, well, really? But, like, yeah. it, it really? When they quote-unquote buy him in the toy store, there's a Confederate flag in the background. Right? Yes. There's a couple. Oh, and there was there was one in uh, Jackie Gleason's office when they're, like, negotiating at one point. Yep. Yeah. There's there's one in Jackie Gleason's office, uh, which is very overt. Jackie Gleason's like, you know, a rich Southerner. And so, I mean, it makes sense, 1982. I mean, it makes sense now, unfortunately, but it makes sense then, certainly. But yeah, then there's one in the toy store. There's a Confederate flag. <laughs> I thought flag. it was a raft. I didn't, yeah, I didn't pick up on what I saw. I read this on the trivia and I went back. But yeah, I think it is, I think it's a pool floaty. It's like, up yeah. on, it's up on like a shelf. It's behind Richard Pryor, like far in the background. And it's when he's actually like 
being given money to agree to this. And it's like, you don't immediately notice it, but it's like, it's back over his shoulder. But yeah, I think it's a pool floaty with a Confederate flag on it, which I'm sure existed in 1982 and I'm sure exists now. Oh, they probably still do. Oh, uh, yeah. But but both of those <laughs> moments like kind of tie in with what uh, Fabs and Tim are saying is that it, it kind of feels like, oh, we're in on it. We get it. This is wrong. You know, it's like, ah, see, commentary, right? Confederate flag. <laughs> they're buying them. Um, as we're talking here, the only the only kind of thing that popped in my head of like why this could have existed beyond what we've already said is I'm wondering if it has something to do with Blazing Saddles. Because Blazing Saddles was 1974, which, you know, obviously, you know, eight years prior to this. But Blazing Saddles was a huge success and was very funny and still is very funny, but very controversial in its day and now and pushes a lot of buttons. And it had a black protagonist who is going into a town that doesn't expect him and doesn't want him, but he's the hero. And so he's kind of flipping things. And Richard Pryor co-wrote Blazing Saddles. Um, he's he's on the script credit. He was supposed to star in it originally, and then they couldn't like get funding. I think if he was, I think it was like a drug issue or something. But but basically, uh, so it ended up going to Cleveland Little. But I'm wondering if they're thinking like, oh, the toy. It could be like Blazing Saddles. It could like push some buttons, and we get Richard Pryor in here. And we're gonna say some stuff about race. And it's like, yeah, you could have, I guess, but you need <laughs> Mel Brooks and a bunch of super talented people to make this work. Yeah. And I think that gets like the, the gets to really what is the core problem with the toy? Like Blazing Saddles is controversial, and you know maybe you know there there are certain elements that that you know like I said you know haven't aged as well. A lot of older comedies haven't always aged particularly well, but Blazing Saddles, you know, it wasn't just being offensive or controversial for the sake of being offensive or controversial. There was actually something that was being said about race relations in blazing saddles like there was there was a point that was being made and the the fact that he was a black guy was not in and of itself the punchline in blazing saddles whereas it kind of feels like that's the case with the toy the punchline is just ha 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 look at this little kid doing all this stuff to a black man and that's as far as it goes yeah no the movie isn't saying anything beyond beyond the surface level yeah ryan you have something no i just said the kid wears a little ss uniform (laughs) yeah he he does he does look vaguely uh vaguely nazi-esque in his uh little little military uniform all right so let's uh let's dive headlong into race relations here since we've been uh nibbling around the edges and uh there's a lot of choice a lot of choice quotes but fabs you had an observation about like the very beginning of this movie because like i said at the top i've seen this before in parts as a kid nobody else here had seen it so fabs and everyone else is coming to a cold and fabs you said yeah. you thought like the first minute you were kind of awestruck yeah i was shocked like the first minute it's like so many stereotypes it's uh middle of the day uh there's like a fish fry going on in the background uh the first thing we see is some uh, a black man carrying a basketball over to a table of uh, black, presumably unemployed, based on conversations and based on like what Richard Pryor is trying to do throughout the movie. Uh, they're betting food stamps. They're day drinking. They're gambling. It's just like all these stereotypes all like at once. And it'd be one thing if 
the movie was like written by Richard Pryor or a person of color, but it was not at all. <laughs> um, so right there, I'm just like, oh man, like I'm already like in the headspace. Just the only thing I knew about the movie was the the slight general premise. I didn't want to uh, find out too much. And then I looked at the opening of the notes and I just see the words racism and racism um, and a comedy about slavery. And then I'm 30 seconds in and I'm just like, oh no, what, what's, what's this going to be? And it got worse from there. <laughs> when the, stereo, the, the stereotypes continue, because then like when he does get to the house, there's the, I, I, I don't even know exactly who she was supposed to be, the German lady. Like who's like the 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 manor coach or the nanny or something just immediately yeah. gets jungle fever as soon as Richard Pryor walks into the door and it's just like so blatantly. She's obvious. also clearly like a former Nazi supporter. Yeah, like, for sure. Various, yeah. Various, like there's Hitler's on the TV at one point and she has like various comments that certainly lean into like she's like uh like flown Nazi Germany or fled Nazi yes. Germany or something. It's just. <laughs> They, they lay it on so thick, so quickly that it is just really hard to watch. Like that may, that, that well, may have been. She's just like literally attacking him. I mean, she's yeah. like, it, she's assaulting him essentially. But, and it's and played then, for laughs. It's played for laughs. And then also, again, especially watching this in 2020, she goes after him. He rebuffs the advances. And as he's walking out the door, all of a sudden she like starts yelling and essentially accusing him of trying to rape her, which is just kind of like, oh, great. It's a Karen. That. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just like <laughs> in a movie full of really tasteless decisions like that that was the thing that i think made me cringe the most where i was just like oh my god what is going on who greenlit this and i know the answer it was some jackass in the 80s but still (laughs) so some of the choice lines uh like from the get-go because i mean it's as as we're saying it's, it's not great early on but once the premise kicks into full gear like if you were just watching this casually on like a sunday afternoon as many people in the 90s were including myself um you know you would have come to this scene so like i said the kid eric decides that he wants richard Pryor, and here is some of the dialogue from the scene so that like all 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 this uh fathers like minions are like oh you want this you want that that big train and like they're just like talking about all this stuff and the kid clearly doesn't care and they're trying to impress him because they want to impress their boss and he says i know what i want the black man and that is the dialogue that (laughs) kicks the plot into gear just like flat out and then you have ned Beatty and somebody else saying you can't buy a human being eric and he goes why not and then there's a big pause, and one of the characters says, or I think it's Ned Beatty says, it's against the law, isn't it? And he starts looking at the other members of the entourage, just like, yeah, it's against the law movie from 1982. Like, I know it's set in the South, but, you know, like, like I, it's, it's a, such a bizarre scene because it's like, are you trying to convey that these characters, like, would be cool with slavery or like they aren't totally (laughs) sure if slavery ended like what's your goal there i i think the the charitable assessment of that is 
they are concerned about saying no to the child of their boss. So they want to make sure that their asses are covered. Right, that is the, the, the question of assessment. But they're, they're asking whether or not it's against the law. I'm like, of course it's against the law. In like, 1982. Like, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I'm trying to be charitable. <laughs> it's not a great defense. It's probably not what was actually going on, but, um, but I, and, and as we were talking about this, I, and this kind of ties back into like how did this get made? Like when you look at like a lot of movies in the eighties, this was a very reactionary period of time in like Hollywood. Cause we're coming off the civil rights movement. Yeah. You had a lot of more uh, like socially conscious and envelope pushing movies in the seventies, but then like the eighties, you had a bunch of like pop culture entertainment that was much more reactionary and like very, um, very pro-American kind of jigganistic because you ha- like, you know, that's when Rambo d- starts winning wars single-handedly and just like oh, yeah. annihilating racial stereotypes <laughs> left and right. Uh, An- that's where you- Anni- I wouldn't say annihilating them. That makes it sound like he's getting rid of racial stereotypes and he was not. No, <laughs> that is correct. Um, I mean, butchering. You have, you have you have like stuff like the A Team, where it is like clearly, it is clearly you know kind of this conservative mindset of oh the government like the the big liberal government isn't going to help you you know we got to go with these guys and I, I mean that's essentially a Rambo game too like the U.S. government isn't going to do what's necessary too many bleeding heart liberals so just send this dude in to murder everyone without any conscience and I mean this is this is a different aspect of that but you have the toy too which would kind of fit into that where it's this reactionary kind of mindset against the gains that we had been seeing made with like the civil rights movement and stuff like that where it's kind of like a well actually let's put a lid in that and go back to uh feeling good about ourselves and by ourselves i mean white people yeah <laughs> I didn't know what to, I felt so awkward. I was like, "Where do I? Where do I go from here?" I'm a white man. Uh. Yeah, not really something we can all just stand and applause for. <laughs> so, no, I mean, some y- other, yeah, uh, some other choice moments, um, and you know, feel free to throw in any others of your own. But uh, so that scene where he's he's buying Richard Pryor also includes the line, "Wrap him up," and then they do. They wrap up Richard Pryor in a giant crate full of like peanuts, like the, you know, packing peanuts. And he has a big bow on his head and they eventually let him out. And he's been in there clearly for like hours and they're playing. Hey, he got air laughs. He was complaining about not being able to breathe well, though. And they let him out. And that's like one of the first times that he, you know, so he's, he's agreed to this. And then he eventually he's basically like immediately backing out of the deal which is like understandable given everything that's going on, but it's just one of the points where the movie is doing this push and pull that continues on forever. And yeah, so they, uh, they wrap up Richard Pryor. So that's a, that's a bizarre moment. That's when my wife left. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I'm out. I I can't do this. I'm like, okay, fair. Doesn't he, uh, um, Bates go tell his wife that there's a, now don't be worried, but there's a black man in the house. He does, and oh, he, uh, does, yeah. he, he also is talking about his son, and he says he bought a black man, and she says, I wasn't aware we sold them. 
And <laughs> that was like an actually decent like bit of like comedic <laughs> writing as much as the rest of the movie is just a total horror show. Yeah. Another point, uh, I think it's, th- this was maybe the worst part of the movie for me. I, I know, uh, excluding the end, but I know, Tim, you said you thought it was the the German woman attacking him. But you have this movie that's like walking this bizarre line or treading over this line or however you want to uh, talk about it. And they're going in all these weird directions. And you could say, oh, but it's from Richard Pryor's point of view. And so he's in on it and we're in on it. And, you know, it's he's our hero and all that kind of stuff. But there's one point when stuff's going down and the kid's kind of pissing off Richard Pryor and it's embarrassing, like their actions are embarrassing Jackie Gleason's character. He gets irritated at at it and says, put your toy away and go to sleep. So he literally just calls Richard Pryor a toy. Like he just refers to him as an object in one moment. Because prior to this point, Jackie Gleason was kind of presented as like, hey, my kid wants to do this. I'll, you know, pay a lot of money, but he was still like approaching him as a person. But in that moment, it was just like pure dehumanization. And I was like, yeah. wow, totally. movie. <laughs> totally. Because before it's like almost on equal footing because he's like, uh, Richard Pryor has something that he knows that uh, Jackie Gleason wants. So there's that negotiation that ensues. And so, yeah, at, at, at that point, they're, they're obviously not viewing one another as equals um during the negotiation but he still at least realizes oh you have an actual decision in this in this process like i can't force you to be my child's toy um as wealthy as i am as high my as my status is but yeah you're right that that at that point i was just like oh god like something in this movie be redeemable please and it just it just never happened there's a cool robot that punches him in the balls Oh, that was that was dope. His the kid's game room is sweet. Like that that was that was amazing. I, I especially for early eighties like video game technology, he had some awesome stuff in there. I was just like, who needs friends? I want to live yeah. there. He's there for a week. Like, yeah, you can just play with your toys. You don't need. How is it any different than what all of us are doing during COVID right now? Yeah. Exactly. Buck up, kid. To Welcome to the real punch world. Me in the balls. <laughs> Don't they address that in the movie too? COVID, quote unquote, real world. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, they talk about COVID. Yeah. When Jackie Gleason makes uh, Beatty pull his pants down, he's like, "I'm reality." Oh yeah, I that was make... a part. Uh, um, so we're we're building up to one of the the bigger moments of the film near the end here, but there is a little tangent I wanted to take us on that I'm sure Tim will appreciate because. Tim has made it a running theme on most of our podcasts to compare characters to Donald Trump. And <laughs> I am not, I am not going into movies looking for this. Tim, I think does, but I am not. But as, as the movie was unfolding, I was like noticing some things of like, yeah, it's like, like the, the initial joke comment I made was that Bates. So U S Bates, which is Jackie Gleason is like Trump. If he cared even the, in the slightest for his children. Because Bates is like presented as this like super rich dude from the South and will kind of like he gets whatever he wants. At one point, he drags an entire like dinner table to himself so he doesn't have to move. And that's one of the early. So it's like he's just presented as like utterly selfish. So it's like, okay, that's kind of like Trumpian. 
but he is presented as like he does care about his kid he doesn't have a good relationship with him but he is trying to some degree and once he sees richard Pryor, like is kind of bonding with the kid he's like cool i can like this will be a way that like i can give him like i can give him richard Pryor, and everything will be fine whereas like i don't think donald trump gives a fuck about any of his kids um so there is that but there was a so i it was in the kind of in the back of my head of like him being vaguely trumpian um but then at one point he says truth has nothing to do with reality and i was like holy fuck he is donald trump (laughs) and and his point is he's trying to like it's like uh his son and richard Pryor have uncovered a bunch of like scandals with jackie gleason's character and they like made this like miniature newspaper thing that they distributed and so they're basically embarrassing him and he's saying he's gonna like get them all collected and destroy them all and so that's when he says like truth has nothing to do with reality and he makes ned Beatty, who's his underling just like take his pants off and he does it to show i can do that because i'm powerful and he knows that if he doesn't do it i'm gonna fire him and then he basically makes richard Pryor. Well, he like offers Richard Pryor a job as a newspaper reporter, which is what he wanted in sort of a like, yeah, you, I can give you that. You want that, right? As just kind of a show of how powerful he is. And so it's, it's this kind of like horrid lesson that he's unleashing on the audience and unleashing on Richard Pryor and especially unleashing on his son. But yeah, it's like the, the line truth has nothing to do with reality just like jumped out at me, especially since we were recording this right in the midst of Donald Trump refusing the results of the election. Yeah, well, and and if we want to want to get into it, uh, get into the end, you know how else uh, U.S. Bates is like Donald Trump? <laughs> how, Tim? Tell us. Support from the Klan. <laughs> That was, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you want to be yeah. the one to kind of explain it, but oh my I'll, goodness. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll leave it up to, to you guys. I'll just briefly say uh, U.S. Bates has this big fundraiser event and Richard Pryor's girlfriend, who is like a leftist lawyer and she drives around the van called Clan Watch. I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's never really elaborated much on, but basically I think she's she and others are looking um you know for for like right wing and flat out racist uh policies and events and things like that they're trying to uncover things and so that's like a very loose thread that ends up sort of coming back near the end and so bates is having this big fundraiser and it's supposedly for this liberal senator and he's he's, he calls himself liberal and so he's a you know liberal slash democratic senator louisiana liberal yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, but the guy kind of makes it clear, though, he he says liberal. And I think the idea is more leftist because it's the South of like that. you yeah. would, He wouldn't yeah. have expected Bates to be supporting him. And so but Bates also has the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan there. And he's like kept he's kept the senator unaware of that fact. And there's, I think there are other clan members there as well. They aren't in robes or anything. They're in like civilian clothes, but he has them there. And I may have missed something, but I think the implication is it's all, it's all of this. It's like this huge thing. It's like this afternoon thing with like hundreds of guests that they have like carnival rides and shit. I think all of this is being done. The Senator thinks it's like a secret fundraiser. 
but it's all being done to just get a picture with the senator with the KKK. Yep. But I but I don't think it's ever talked about at any other point. My guess is just Bates just wants to destroy his career because he's like a rich asshole. And so probably, you know, isn't like you think of like, oh, a rich guy isn't going to support a lot of liberal yeah. policies. So he wants to ruin that guy's career. Like, but I don't think the movie ever talks about it prior to when it's thrown in our laps. I, I don't think yeah. they do. It's it's really because, yeah, it, it, come, it comes out of nowhere. And like I had to rewind the movie a little bit to make sure that like, wait, the, the clan's involved now? Because like, it, not only is it just dropped out of nowhere, but it's done so in such a matter of fact way. Like, oh yeah, of course this is happening. What else did you think was going to happen at the end of this movie audience? Um, well, not just that the clan shows up. I mean, the clan to me makes more sense than the Senator thing. And I'll explain why the clan makes sense because they're trying to tow this like race line and make, you know, be satirical and everything. The Senator thing from a storytelling standpoint, it's like, shouldn't that have been a thread that went through the whole movie of like, Oh, there's this senatorial campaign and like, it would have oh, been we're, so we're, easy. Too. We're, yeah. yeah. And like, we're, we're worried about what it's going to do to our business. Like, is he going to like, Put, you know, put through more taxes. Like you could have so, like as Fab say, so easily had that as a thread, and then it pays off horribly, of course. But it would at least pay off narratively at the end. But the way it is, it's like it's like this thread that never existed. And then, like, oh yeah, Senator such and such, you remember him from never? Yeah, yeah he could just be like like about to like uh, be pushing a bill forward that was going to have to break up his monopoly or whatever. Yeah of newspapers or something, but it, it, well, okay. So one, I want to see a movie about the clan watch with like, I wanted to see one with like Richard Pryor and his girlfriend, like kicking ass and tracking down members of the clan in Louisiana. Like, like, that like been... Ghostbusters, but they're going after the clan. Exactly. So, I mean, that would be amazing. That would still be an amazing movie. <laughs> um, secondly, my biggest problem with the clan being dropped out of nowhere is while this movie toes that line where it's talking about, oh, is it legal to own a person? Uh, like, obviously not. Um, there's there's no real world implications in this movie. Like it's been a comedy the whole time. There's financial motivations, but there's um, there 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 don't there don't seem to be the imp- uh, the real world uh, implications that black people go through every day in this movie in terms of uh, danger to their lives. And so it's very strange then to have, you know, the symbol of uh, black torture and black executions in the South just become the villain out of nowhere. In I don't even comedy. think they become the villain. Yeah, you're right. They don't, but, <laughs> but being used as a device out of yeah. nowhere yeah. When at I think- the end, it just, it was just the tone guy. I was like, Oh my God, like why? This is so weird. Well, it also, cause I mean, I'm, I'm going to, you know, speak in relative terms because obviously the movie is racist. Obviously the characters are racist. <laughs> you know, we know that, but like the movie from the movie's perspective, Jackie Gleason's character, they are trying to present him as not really racist not a bad guy like yes he has offered he is trying to buy this black man for his son but like as as you know 
you and Fabs talked about, like for most of the movie, he is, you know, working with them. Like he seems to be doing it for his kid. There's only that one moment where he says, you know, put your toy away, whereas that where there's that dehumanizing aspect. But the movie seems to be invested in presenting the father as like a decent person. And then at the very end, he is like explicitly working with the clan which really undercuts like any sense of a person being decent, especially since the movie isn't dealing in nuance. We've never met any of these characters. We've never seen like any, you know, competing personalities or anything like it, like everything is, is meant to be presented as like very black and white. So the fact that he is working with the clan, like really should be like, Oh, he's a bad guy, but that's not how the movie treats it. (laughs) When they show up, he's, he's talking about it as like, so he tells the senator, oh, well, we want to keep this under wraps about that this is a political event. And he also says the exact same thing to the, the head of the Klan. And I, again, I haven't seen this movie in years and don't think I'd ever seen it in total. But my comment at the time when it was revealed, I was like, he's funding the Klan? Like, like I just like all caps. <laughs> And then it ends up being revealed like, oh, no, he's actually using the Klan to embarrass and probably ruin this this senator's career. And it's like, all right, well, that makes a little more sense, even though the movie never established anything about the senator, as I said. But my my lingering thought, though, and Tim, I know you had kind of a similar thing to jump off of this, but my lingering thought was, okay, you're like one of the richest guys in the south probably in america you have a whole city that's named for your family right and a city that's basically baton rouge so you have you know it's like you have a huge metropolitan area that's named after your family that you're in this mansion you own all this stuff and so okay you're trying to embarrass this liberal senator to get him removed from uh removed from the senate or so he won't get reelected or whatever but then you feel that you yourself will face absolutely no repercussions for having a gigantic event with hundreds of people there, many of which would not be clan members themselves, just like regular people from the South. So you have like hundreds of people there, hundreds of witnesses, people with cameras, you have the head of the KKK and other KKK members there present. So like, are we just supposed to roll with like, just because this is 1982, that's normal. Like that a Southern businessman at that time could have had an event with the Klan and people would have been like, yeah, you know, whatever. Like, like, because like it, he has no concept that it could ruin him in any way, that there's no blowback possible, which like that blew my mind. Like it's not, you're not just connecting the Klan, the leader of the Klan with this Senator. He's at your party. You, you invited him. Yeah. And it's not even like, Honestly, like maybe in 82, there wouldn't have been that many consequences. But like my bigger issue was the movie doesn't present him with any consequences. Like he does this. He works with the clan to some degree. And like maybe it was just he was just using them to to get rid of the senator. That sounds like it makes sense. But again, the movie doesn't really do very much to actually establish that establish that clearly so the big thing is oh here's the dad working with the clan that's bad and then when all is said and done the dad still gets everything that he wants as far as the movie's concerned he still ends up winning the love of his son 
like they establish a relationship. Uh, Richard Pryor's character is apparently totally cool with the fact that this dude was working with the clan you know even though not only is he a black man but his girlfriend is very invested in working against the clan like they have a conversation like they're old buddies at the end of the movie and then bates drives off and there are no repercussions there are no consequences the movie treats him like almost like he is the protagonist like his like the focus is on Richard Pryor, but the way the movie is kind of built and it progresses, it's it, it kind of feels like it's the classic, you know, businessman learning to appreciate, you know, yeah, Ebenezer Scrooge, yeah, totally, yeah. So the movie ends with it, you know him learning his lesson. He's gonna spend more time with his son. They have a better relationship, and like he wins. And so, like, anybody's still going to send this on a boarding school <laughs> or military school. But then, but then, like, the movie, the the movie is, you know, intended or not, the movie is basically saying, "Oh yeah, there are no consequences to racism, <laughs> absolutely none. We can smooth over all of that as long as you have money." <laughs> like, it's 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 so. It was so enraging to get, like the movie was bad. The movie was bad all the way through, but then it gets that ending, and it went from bad to infuriating to me. the The no repercussions thing is definitely true in that, like watching it. I mean, we're watching it, you know, forty years, almost forty years removed from when it came out, and you know, but it, it wouldn't have played great even then. I I almost wonder though, with Richard Pryor not reacting to or not caring about. I mean, he does, they do like wreck the party. They, he, they drive like a go-kart through stuff. And there's also what I refer to as the Ku Klux Klan pie fight in all caps. Um, we, we do get that. That is a sentence. I that, think that's uh, the most shocking part where the cop actually does something back to them down in the South <laughs> when, upon finding out they're members of the KKK. Well, one guy was in pudding blackface and so maybe he mistook him. It's true. <laughs> So we, we do, they do kind of like somewhat lose in almost like a cartoonish, like latter day John Hughes career type way or Beethoven the movie, like where, you know, criminals are getting bitten by in the crotch by dogs kind of way of like P.E. fell on the pudding, that sort of thing. But I, I almost wonder the, uh, the Richard Pryor thing almost makes a little bit of sense. I, I doubt this was intended. But you could say maybe 40 years ago, it would have just been in the South, like a black person would have been like, oh, yeah, he has connections to the Klan. Yeah, <laughs> like it would have just been like not good. They wouldn't have enjoyed it, but it may have just been like so commonplace. Just yeah, just, I mean, it, obviously, like the Klan was more a act active in the 60s. But still, like, you know, Richard Pryor's character is, like, probably near 40. I don't, I don't think I, – I'm giving the movie way more credit than it deserves. I was it does, say, I'm glad it, they leaned into realism in the last five minutes yeah, of this movie. But it does make me wonder, like, what, what the view of it would have been by black people. I mean, I'm sure they would have been horrified by much of it. But I wonder on that specific aspect if it would have been like, oh, yeah, the Klan. Yeah, if you're in the South, like, yeah, I mean, I, I know all kinds of people who have, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not from the South. I'm not sure. I don't want to make that kind of, like, generalization. But I wonder if that's part of the non-response is because it was just known. And yeah, I, I don't know. And maybe that's why they have it where he faces no repercussions. He, he's not afraid of any repercussions because 
maybe 40 years ago, if we were alive, then we would have looked at reality and been like, yeah, that he wouldn't have faced any repercussions. Like if we came out of that movie, we wouldn't have not had that thought. I don't know. I think I mean, like eight, eight years ago, he wouldn't have faced repercussions <laughs> like before, before Twitter could call him out. But, but Richard Pryor does, I, I for him though, it's like, I, I think the justification is like, okay, I got my job. Like he has a job now at that newspaper um, where he can follow his dreams and hopefully change the newspaper a little bit from within. Um, And I I think that connection he has with the kid, because, you know, he's going to get two weeks vacation next year, but one of those weeks has to be spent with the kid um, is maybe he's just like, okay, well, I can't change this, this old bastard from being racist, but maybe like I can uh, impact his kid. And I can still do what I love and I'm not going to, and I got to pie some people from the KKK. So I'll take it. It's a win. And I, and I, I think like that kind of mindset would work if like you were consciously working towards that as you were writing this. Fair. Yeah. Because there is like, there, there is a way that I think you could actually make this into a satire. And I think ending it with, like the revelation that like, oh yeah, this is just the normal. So nothing is going to change. Like that could be a very bleak biting ending for a well-made satire if that's what you were doing. But I like nothing about this movie up until that point suggests that's the movie they're making. Like it, you know, as Lytton said, it's very bland. There isn't a lot of like super clever bits or really funny things. It's working on a very base superficial superficial level in terms of racial observations it's like very it's a very lesson learning family comedy yeah. kind of, it, it, when it's not being horribly racist it's like oh well, this, <laughs> this this is what you should do eric this is how you should talk to girls like that's yeah. that's what it is and it's also it seems weird <laughs> yeah it's also in a way fantastical like because most of the world that we are seeing in this movie is like the mansion so it's the world of this very very rich family this very rich spoiled child who like fab said like his like game room setup is pretty incredible especially for the time like we are looking at like a version of the world that is very exaggerated fantastical from what most people would experience so like it it there was no through line if you had a through line, if you like, if the 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 point you wanted the movie to make was that kind of ending realization of, oh yeah, like all of these rich white people have clan connections, racism is just like a normal part of our life. We have to take the wins where we get them. Like, if that's what you wanted the point of the movie to be, and you built everything throughout the movie leading to that maybe this works but it really feels like that's a happy accident and we're reading way too much into the end oh for sure well and and i we already talked about a little bit with like blazing saddles and stuff but you could do this movie as like a very kind of bleak or biting or sharp however you want to call it satire and have it be about race you just need a much better script a much Mm -hmm. smarter script uh, a script that would be hard to write. I, I will just say flat out, like it would be very difficult to write that script, but it's not impossible. But Fabs, you uh, the, the other way to do it is if you just 
made it an actual just like family comedy that was basically inoffensive and fabs you had like kind of an angle on it of like how you saw it could have worked if you removed a lot of the racial aspects yeah i mean just make him like the kid is friendless and they hire him to be his friend not like literally just delete the lines <laughs> about buying a black man like he just is like i want a friend that guy's really funny of how he plays with toys um he could Richard Pryor's character could have gotten a job in the toy department. Yeah. Like that's easy. You don't need that whole bullshit of him dressed in an, an, a French made uniform. He's in the guy's department store in a toy department. He could still be about to get fired. And this is like his saving grace. Um, so you can get the, like the, his like sass to, uh, to us, uh, us's character. Uh, and the kid they're showing him around the department store. He's closing up the toy store. He's playing with all the same stuff. And there, go from there. And now it's not racist. It's like big, six years before big. And then it's like kind of sweet because then the whole thing, you can still have the obvious racial dynamics of a black man being in this Southern wealthy world where he like, like, you know, where he doesn't fit in necessarily. Get rid of the clan stuff, obviously. Um, And in that scenario, it could be more like trading places. Because exactly. in Trading yeah. Places, like race is a component of Eddie Murphy's story in that movie. Totally. But they don't make him I mean, they don't make Richard Pryor a laughing stock in it, but the the scenario that he's in and the like how heavy they lay everything on it is so bad and bizarre. But whereas in like Trading Places, it's Eddie Murphy is thrust into this world of rich white people. And so he sticks out, but then he's like ends up being smarter than a good deal of them and they underestimated him. And so like, you could play it similar to that. Uh, another thing, as you were talking, like they make him, they already have him as a writer. What if he like wants to write a children's book or has been struggling to write a children's yeah. book, or he ends up writing a children's book at the end. He had an idea that never would go anywhere. And then it's like, Oh, I'm not going to write the great American novel. I'm going to write like something for kids. Like, like he ends up finding himself, through this journey, like those are ways to make this work that are not, I want to buy the black man. Exactly. (laughs) Or he was a former pro wrestler that becomes the kid's nanny. (laughs) That too. Ryan's very, very fixated. More, make it way more racist. (laughs) (laughs) And then you at least play in the South, probably make more money, maybe get a sequel. It's funny you say that. Uh, it, it did play to some degree because it uh, it was made for twenty eight million and it made forty seven million. So uh, I mean that, that, that that sounds about right. That doesn't factor in like marketing and stuff, but still, it was likely profitable. You know, it likely turned a profit, and uh, you know, so this was not this was not an, a failed obscure movie. It you know it was like a mild hit of its day. So, so those are some of the much more troubling aspects of the film. Uh, any other weird, wild stuff we want to talk about? Yes. When he's in that big wheel in the toy store, you can see Stagehand's hands moving it. Fascinating. Yes. And uh, those, those dominoes. The hell? Take a whole month to set up that pitted ass little table of dominoes. 
That was pathetic too. Like, yeah, I know. that wasn't even like. How did That's it take like a my month? afternoon like as a the kid. Worst domino. Yeah, uh, who the hell yeah. sets up dominoes if you're not going to knock them down? Yeah, there's a running the gag of of uh, Jackie Gleason's character having these tables set up, but he has them both in his house and at work. These tables set up with dominoes, and it's like not even impressive. It's like a small dining room table with maybe like. 500 dominoes on it and he makes this big thing about how it took him a month to do it and then oh wouldn't you know it they get knocked over zany hijinks and it happens like a couple other times as well but yeah it's like it's not impressive in the slightest and to ryan's point who sets up dominoes to leave them there i mean even like a slight breeze can do this (laughs) if this were a better movie i would suggest maybe it's meant to be a metaphor for white mediocrity but uh, I also there were black dominoes, which was interesting. It said white dominoes, mm. so I don't know. Maybe a whole Make, makes you think, doesn't it? Fast Make, makes, you, makes think. you think. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes, yeah, some other weird stuff. Um, so according to uh, Scott Schwartz, who played the kid, he said that the hardest part of the movie is working with Jackie Gleason. Um, because Schwartz was trained to memorize his lines and Gleason would improvise a lot and throw him off, which resulted in Gleason yelling at him. So apparently Jackie Gleason was ad-libbing with a child, and then when the child wasn't good enough to go along with his ad-libs, would yell at said child. Jackie Gleason's probably was like, I was making my bones before you were getting your tongue stuck on on flagpoles, and the kid was just sobbing. I'll show you. Nice. You'll never well, work in this town to... again. You better you better keep up with me or one of these days, wham, pow, straight to the moon. And then he's like, I don't know what that means. He's like, you didn't watch a show 30 years ago? <laughs> I was big. The only thing you'll ever do in this business is adult pornography. Which he later well, did. And he did. Yes, yeah, so that's that's another weird uh, bit of trivia is uh, Scott Schwartz. Uh, his biggest film is A Christmas Story, and then he was in this, and I think a couple other things. But his credits are not very lengthy, but he was involved in uh, adult films, initially in, like, non-sexual roles. So I guess he was, like, a porn Fluffer. character actor. Like, you know, just, just one of the, like, <laughs> oh, guys. Oh, wait, he, that's a real, wait, are you, is that no, real? I did not no, know No, he, he was, he was involved, like, he was, like, an actor oh, in adult God. films, but I'm guessing he was, like, the guy who, like, checked them in at the hotel or something. Like, I don't know. He wasn't doing anything sexual. And then eventually uh, it became sexual. He was probably like, oh, that, that seems like it's be more fun. So uh, he <laughs> did more, too. So he did a a few adult films. He wasn't in very many, but uh, apparently that was part of his career. What's the one with the really good name? It's like Scotty's Triple X Adventure or something. I I I did not dig into the names. (laughs) I was just looking at his filmography. All right. Other uh, other stuff. I thought it was weird that he got so embarrassed when... uh, U.S.'s trophy wife drug him into the room with his Spider-Man pajamas on. But he was perfectly okay dressing up like the French maid. Yeah, that was super weird. I was like, why is he like upset about this? That's a much cooler outfit than like what he was wearing. Yeah, I'd show that earlier off. in the day. <laughs> well, you see, guys, the plot needed to move forward. <laughs> yeah, he needed to be offered the ten thousand dollars so that he could like want to stay on and, and not have to have some other scheme happen. 
to get the full amount to, to cover the mortgage. So Fabs, you yeah. had a you had a question about toys in general as well as how much we would sell ourselves for. Yes. I would sell myself, like in this instance, not in a like sex trade type of scenario, just to be this kid's toy. Like if it was this same kid, uh, not the problem child kid because he was just the worst, but this same kid, I would take a week off work because it also seemed like he didn't have to stay there. Like he got to go home to his girlfriend. So it didn't seem like I'm not a live-in toy where I have to like sit against the wall and pretend I'm a toy during the night and get into weird shit. So I would do it for like 10 grand, you know, like that's seems. You said five. So your, your, uh, your price. Is I gone it. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about, it. I was like, well, he got 10 grand in this and this movie is like 40 years old. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, the thing is though, we have five grand in writing now. So. Oh shit. Okay. I would do it for five grand. But here's the thing. Five, five grand still not even that bad a deal. Cause that's a thousand dollars a day for basically just like, hanging out and kind of like playing video games a little kid yeah like, going fishing and stuff as someone, like, as someone who used to, to to babysit that's a steal he was almost killed by piranhas <laughs> that's true oh yes there's that another zany sequence where he's uh nearly devoured by piranhas <laughs> so, uh, he walks on water scope it out for that uh, but yeah, you also the, didn't the dad put piranhas in the lake for some really weird reason that made zero sense. I thought it was like the kid wanted them or something, and so his dad. Yeah, the kid was, wanted them. It was to keep people out of the area because hmm. too hmm. many people were like there littering and enjoying the place. So he filled it with piranhas. Can't so have Fabs, joy. Uh, Fabs, you had a question about for us about toys. Yeah, what's what was every? Does everyone have a favorite? Or a super memorable toy from their their youth. I had the Technodrome playset, motherfuckers, like the big Ooh, Technodrome nice. that would open up and shit. Yeah, that was a good one. Tim also had a Black Man. So, <laughs> oh my god, Tim! I can't believe you had a Black Man. Oh, I was gonna say Vac Man, the Stretch Armstrong villain. But that does sound. Oh, like I had that Black too. Man. I did have that. Mine yeah. broke. Its arms broke off. <laughs> yeah, I loved man? it too much. Yeah, it had like it's was weird clear goop inside. That wasn't Batman. Yeah, Batman was full of styrofoam beads. Yeah, it was like beads. Yeah, yeah, there was Stretch Armstrong, which like I think was originally a seventies toy, and then they redid it. But yeah, Vacman, you actually like pulled Pumped air out, and he was like, it was almost like there was kind of like a ricey kind of feel mm-hmm. under the skin. Stretch Armstrong might have had a gel in it. That might be what you did. I, yeah, I think that it one did. did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought about your question. I thought about your question, uh, on it and I had the sewer playset from Ninja Turtles. That was pretty great. Oh, I had that in, too. Back in the day, along with like the Ninja Turtles blimp. So I think those, that got a lot of regular rotation. And I also had, I was just trying to think of like toys that I definitely played with a lot and did a lot of stuff with, and those would have been up there. But I also, I still have this, the... Batman returns like Wayne Manor slash Batcave. And so uh that was like a pretty good playset because you could do a lot of stuff like Batman related with it. And it like had the front and the back and like interior of Wayne Manor and stuff. So that one was pretty cool. This wasn't one that I had myself, but my friend did. And so we would play with it a lot when I go over to his place. It was the big um real Ghostbusters headquarter playset. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah 
My so the one I wrote in the notes was I had got the talk boy from Home Alone nice. Two, and that was so fun, but also so annoying for my family. <laughs> I had uh, a talk boy. We had part of a slinky, but I straightened it. <laughs> so a metal cable. He had a metal cable. Ryan's coming in with Ghostbusters two references. Which is <laughs> what he's here for. Um, okay, so anything else before we wrap up? No. All right. Mm. So don't see this movie. <laughs> don't you... buy a man. All right, hang on, hang on. We're not to that part yet. Would you recommend the toy? Maybe my dad. <laughs> Okay, if you, I would recommend it to people who are upset about uh, the results of our election this year. I think they would love this movie. Uh, I mean, but other than that, no. I mean, I could like maybe like if you were trying maybe to like use this as an example for like how not to go about <laughs> tackling sensitive subjects in comedy. Like, yeah. like I could see using this as like an instructive example. Um, but outside of that, no, there really is not much to recommend. Like, like I said before, like there are, there are lots of older comedies that, you know, haven't aged well or elements haven't aged well, but there are, you know, there may still be elements to them that are worth seeking out. Cause it's like really clever bits of comedy. Like the first time different things may have been tried. Th- this is not that like there are, there's no redeeming factor to this movie at all. Ryan, if you're a fan of like classic TV uh, fast motion, there are like two examples in this movie. <laughs> Comes out of nowhere. Some real Benny Hill type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah this movie's a bummer because it just felt like everybody but the kid didn't want to be in it. They're just like walking through the motions and like, are we done with this scene yet? And it, yeah, it just nothing really works in this movie. So, uh, so for me, um, I, I made the comment in the notes that like usually I end up recommending stuff that we watch just because like I you know I'm picking a lot of things that I like, but I'm also picking things that are bizarre and they tend to be worth checking out if they're like just so bad or so weird and just out there like you have to see it. But honestly, like this is one that I. I can't even really recommend with like a condition, like as a conditional thing, because it's, it's not bad enough or crazy enough to say, Oh yeah, go watch this for an hour and 40 minutes. There are definitely like crazier and worse movies that are out there that like you can kind of marvel at. So it it doesn't work on that. And then we've talked about all the ways it doesn't work on its own merits. It's not funny. It doesn't even really work as a comedy or as a script or as like a family movie. And then it has all of these racial issues along with it, you know, racism along with it. So I would not recommend it. I would say it would be worth like trying to track down maybe on YouTube, just like a couple of the scenes, because just to be able to marvel at like, oh, wow, they really shot that, which is the toy scene where they're like in the toy store and just kind of like seeing that scene play out. And then the other would be the Ku Klux Klan pie fight. So if you can find like the clan stuff at the, the big the big finale, I'd say those are your kind of like jaw open ending of the producers when springtime for Hitler is up on stage moments. Like like that's 
that's what those are the those are the two sequences but most of the movie just plays like you know mildly or not so mildly offensive or just boring so yeah ultimately not a recommendation for me but it does bring us to uh our segment of can i find this which is where i tell you whether or not you can track down this movie and i've added this in because a lot of the movies that we have uh used for this end up being things that are difficult to find and it's you know hard to track down in you know different streaming services whatever well i am not too pleased to announce that this movie is <laughs> everywhere. You can find this anywhere you want it. Any kind of streaming service. It's like iTunes, Amazon Prime, YouTube. They are readily available at your fingertips. And you can also get it. Somebody uploaded on archive.org. It is on DVD and Blu-ray, not out of print. Unlike many of the much better movies that we've watched that are out of print. Wait, so, they, they, they put the, they ported this to Blu-ray? It is on Blu-ray, Timothy. It is on Blu-ray. And so right. they so are. Criteria. I would have loved to be in that meeting. <laughs> so they are criteria clearly, clearly giving the people what they want. And what they want is Richard Pryor's 1982 film, The Toy. So it's out there. Um, fuck. <laughs> yep. Tim, this Tim, is... Is, Tim looks very sad at learning that this is on Blu-ray. Uh, but no, that is pretty gross because uh, we have talked about a number of movies that are excellent that have not been put to Blu-ray or were put to Blu-ray like once at like 2008 and then have never been like they went out of print and have not been seen since. So yeah, you can... You can buy this on Amazon on Blu-ray for like 10 bucks or something if you want it for whatever reason you would want to do that. All right. So that is our wrap up here on The Toy. We will be back next time with a, a very different uh, watching experience. This will be our first viewing that will not be actually a film. It's going to be a web series, a very short web series. And we will be looking at Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. Oh, so, my God. So I join us that. then. <laughs>